Welcome, you're listening to the Harvest Community Church Podcast. Whether you attend locally in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, or are just jumping in to listen to this weekend's service, we're so glad you're here. In this Advent season, we're taking time in Isaiah's prophecies, and more specifically, the names given to Jesus in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. He is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Through this season, we want to grow in our relationship with Him and knowledge of our King Jesus so that we can worship and walk with Him, not just as we celebrate Christmas, but throughout the whole year. If you want to join us this holiday season or want to find out more about our church, you can visit us online at harvestcommunity.org. We're going to have a reading from Isaiah uh, before Caleb comes to, to preach God's Word to us, so I'll read this for us. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray that as um, Caleb comes to preach, that you will just prepare our hearts, that your word will speak to us, will move powerfully, and that you will use our brother to instruct us and to encourage us, to challenge us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's such a nice surprise that Jamie can sing because we just brought him here to read scripture. It was a lifelong goal of mine to have someone from Scotland do the scripture reading, and then he gets here, and apparently he can sing, which is amazing. No, we're, we're blessed to have him here. He's, he's fast becoming a friend of this fellowship. Advent means arrival, and this is the second Sunday of Advent where we are preparing to celebrate the arrival of Jesus, not just the first time in human history a little over 2,000 years ago, but Advent means arrival, and Jesus is coming again. We just sang, how great thou art, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. Christ will come again. Advent means arrival. We remember that Christ came into our human world, fully human and yet fully God 2,000 years ago, and we are reminded today that he will come again. On this second Sunday of Advent, his coming arrival, we know, is as certain as the first. And as we learned in Zephaniah this morning, This is the God who is mighty to save. The one who is coming is mighty to save. This morning, we continue in Isaiah 9-6. We're taking the four names found in Isaiah 9-6, and we're focusing on one each of the Sundays of Advent. Isaiah 9-6 has been called a birth announcement for the Son of God, for Emmanuel, for God with us. The burden of this sermon this morning is for us to ask what sort of God is with us? 
who is this child, this son of God who arrived once and yet will return again? I want to ask this morning, Harvest, what sort of God is with us? Who is this child, this son of God? What kind of God arrived 2,000 years ago and what kind of God will arrive once more? Last week, Pastor Dave, a, a good friend of mine, helped us discover once again that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the wonderful counselor, the ever-available wisdom of God. This morning, the second Sunday of Advent, we will be exploring what it means that Jesus is the mighty God. The Hebrew word for mighty in Isaiah 9-6 is gibor, and this was a surprising turn for me in my studies. The Hebrew word for mighty is gibor, which means warrior or hero, like valiant, mighty warrior, like mighty in battle God. Mighty God, he's heroic, valiant, mighty. In our terms, in our uh, cultural language, we uh, hear people that we would esteem as heroes in honor. My mind quickly goes back to my freshman year of college speech class. I didn't know what to cover. I chose to do a speech on the Vietnam War. And one of the requirements for this freshman class was to find a primary source for your subject. I grew up in a town of 800 people. I didn't have many people to choose from. I was related to most of them. I'm just kidding. My wife really is related to most people in Northeast Wisconsin. I'm a bit of a transplant. But in my freshman class, I asked around, and a good friend, I was working in a, a factory at the time, and a good friend of mine that I grew up with, his dad was in the Vietnam War. And I'm like, oh, can you connect me with your dad? I'd like to talk to him. So he agreed to an interview. I was not prepared for what I would encounter in this interview. This man quickly became a hero of mine. He served as a Green Beret in the Army on the front lines in Vietnam. And he shared not only stories and testimony opened up to me in ways that he had never even opened up to his family, but shared with me the most amazing letter. It was a friend of his who received the Medal of Honor, and he shared with me his letter that came with that rare award. And as I read the words on that page, my jaw hit the floor at what God enables some men and women to do here in this life that truly is worthy of honor. This is inherent in the word gibor in Hebrew. This sort of bravery and honor, valor, worthy of heroes. This is our God as spoken of in Isaiah 9-6. When we say mighty God, we're talking about a valiant warrior hero God here, but we've got to pause because stay with me. The context here is about a child for to us, a child is born. And actually, as you read further down the paragraph, it's a son who will be given a son who will sit on the throne of David. So we're not talking about valiant warrior 
hero, God the Father. We're talking about the warrior, the valiant, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the Messiah, the hope of Israel, the king longed for in the line of David. So now we know so far that this warrior, this valiant warrior in Isaiah 9, 6 is King Jesus. Now regarding God, the father, Yahweh, we've been sitting in Joshua for some time now, only to break for these four weeks of Advent. And in Joshua 10 through 12, which was the last sermon before we went into our Advent series, we saw in chapters 10, 11, and 12, that it was God, the father who came down and fought in real time for his people. So if we were to talk about Um, just a valiant God who fights for his people, we have a picture in our mind of what that looks like. But this morning we have to reach further because this valiant warrior heroic figure is Jesus Christ, God's own son. So I want to ask a question as we continue. In what way is Jesus a mighty warrior in battle? That's the burden of this sermon. In what way is Jesus Christ the Son of God, a mighty warrior in battle. So as I turned to Matthew's gospel and began reading through the New Testament, looking for ways in which Jesus is this mighty warrior, I had to pick up in uh, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae in Colossians 2, 14 through 15, we see that Jesus first was victorious over the debt of our sin On the cross, listen to Colossians 2, 14 and 15. He erased the certificate of death with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. And he's taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Listen to this victorious language. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. Jesus Christ, the mighty God, triumphed over them in him. Jesus Christ, God's own son, was born In this world, fully human and fully God 2,000 years ago, he lived a sinless life so that he could give that life for you and I. And when he hung on that cross, he did not hang on that cross in defeat. No, he he hung there in sacrifice, victorious over every sin that you have ever committed. All the way back to Genesis chapter 2, when all of history went wrong following the temptations of the serpent in the garden. And every generation afterwards, including you and I, have racked up massive amounts of debt in sin. And Jesus Christ hung on that cross and he said, it is finished. And the language here is that he, picture, picture this, nailed to a cross. Nailed to a cross, look at 15 in a new way. Nailed to a cross, he disarmed. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. And as he hung there, in their, in their intent to shame him, he disgraced them publicly. And he, there, they thought he was nailed to the cross and he's actually disarming They thought he was in disgrace hanging there on that cross, but he disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. Jesus Christ was victorious over our sin and debt on the cross. Further, we see that Jesus was victorious over death in the grave. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 55. Listen to this. Speaking about 
uh, Jesus in the life that he accomplished both from the grave and then in his second coming because Jesus has life. He says, when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. So where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? Jesus Christ, through his resurrection from the grave, is victorious over death itself. Paul, writing to the Romans, I don't have this for the screen, I'm just thinking of this now. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, Don't you know that those of you who have been baptized have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. There is a connection. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This is what Paul held fast to in 1 Corinthians 15. This is why Christians approach the grave differently than any other people alive, because as Christians, we have hope. And all those that die in faith in Jesus Christ are not ultimately dead, but live because Jesus Christ lives because Jesus Christ did not stay in that grave, but rose again and ascended before his father. So our place with the father is sure and certain and no one, no power of hell could take that position away. Jesus Christ is victorious over death in the grave, and our confidence is sure. The book of Hebrews goes on to elaborate. I've been reading this through with my two high school age boys, the book of Hebrews before school. And as, as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, we've been seeing how the author of Hebrews is having to say that, hey, you know, to a group of early Jewish Christians, you know how the priest had to do this and the priest wasn't perfect and the priest had to offer these sacrifices. Well, we have one priest who came and once and for all, he did all the stuff we just read about. But then the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 goes one step further and talks about how he's ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, contrasting with what they knew Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. Maybe you grew up watching a priest in the various actions of the church. That priest could never take away your sins. But this man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the prophesied mighty to save one, the mighty God, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And he is now waiting, here's the war language, until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Jesus Christ not only died and was victorious on the cross, but when he was buried, he rose again and became victorious over death. And then he not only rose again, but was seen by over 500 people. He ascended into heaven. And right now he's at the right hand of the throne of God, the father, where he is seated after a job well done and complete. And from that position, he is now waiting to come again until all of his enemies are made his footstool. You see, Jesus Christ is coming again. And I don't know how you think of this day, 
But Jesus isn't just coming lightly in the clouds to take away those that are his, as in some... They used to make these cheesy end times movies. I actually have never seen one, but I've heard enough to not watch them. (laughs) I like the biblical picture better. Jesus Christ is coming again in victory, the mighty valiant warrior. Hebrews 10 said he is now waiting. So right now, today, December 10th, 2023, Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God seated in heaven at God the Father's own right hand. And according to chapter 10, he is waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Jesus isn't just waiting for some like float in the clouds, save, uh, pull you out of a bad situation sort of thing. Let me... Let me use the Bible to paint this picture. Just as Jesus, through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, and his now present reign in 2023, has truly borne our griefs and become victorious over sin, death, and the grave, he will, just as certain as he did that, he will come again. This is the second arrival, the second advent. He will come again as the victorious King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Listen to Revelation 19, 11 through 16, and let this paint the picture for you of the second advent of that baby who was once in a manger. Revelation 19, verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse its rider called faithful and true and he judges and makes war with justice his eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head he had one he had a name written that no one knows except himself he wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of god the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white Linen, a sharp sword, came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the second advent of Jesus Christ, the mighty God. He has defeated sin, death, and the grave, but in a what scholars call already but not yet sort of way. You see, forgiveness in a relationship with God is secured for us now in real time, but there is so much more to come because Jesus will come again, the mighty God in final judgment and victory over all evil In this world, this is our hope. It's not a light and fluffy hope. It's a very sobering hope. King of kings and Lord of lords. This morning, I want to declare to you that all evil will come to an end in King Jesus. All evil will come to an end in King Jesus. Have you sung the carols? Maybe you were here last night with Jamie leading us. Maybe in some of the songs we already sing or will sing through Christmas Eve. And the carols have a sense of longing. I think of O Holy Night. 
Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Christ is the Lord. Oh, praise his name forever. This is coming from Revelation 19. He will come again and all evil will come to an end in Jesus Christ. So we've seen thus far that in Isaiah 9, 6, Jesus is prophesied to be the mighty warrior, valiant, heroic Messiah. We've seen that in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, present reign, and finally in his future return against in final victory over all evil, that he is that warrior. But in application this morning, I want to ask a question of the congregation that I had to ask myself at this point in my study through the New Testament this week of what it means that Jesus is the mighty God. If Jesus really is the fulfillment of the mighty God, if Jesus is our valiant warrior king, then what do we make of the life that Jesus lived while he was on earth. He doesn't seem to move about our planet in his 33 or so years prior to the cross in a way with the swagger of a valiant, heroic warrior. What do we make of the Jesus of the Beatitudes? Maybe you're not familiar, but let me give you a taste. This as well isn't on the screen, Amanda, but let me just read to you. Which The mighty king, the heroic, valiant warrior, the king of kings and the Lord of lords lived here 2,000 years ago. Lived most of his life in a non-public way, son of a carpenter. And then for the last few years of his life, he started moving about in ministry among people, and we have record of it here in Scripture. And he actually preached a sermon. Can you imagine? You you get to go hear Jesus, the mighty God prophesied in Isaiah 9, 6, preach. And here's what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Does this sound like heroic, warrior, medal of honor, like SEAL Team 6, Braveheart, reference for Jamie? Jesus? Does that seem like what mighty God would say? It puzzled me all week. What do we make of this Jesus whose sermon included, blessed are the merciful? What do we make of the Jesus who encountered a woman who had been married many times and was was, was living a life of immorality and, and in a day and age where teachers, Jewish teachers would not even sit with women, let alone 
people caught in sin. And what did Jesus do? He, he just sat down with her and talked. What do we do with the Jesus who was known as a friend of sinners and was accused of being a drunkard, a drinker and a glutton because of the colorful company that he kept? If you don't believe me, Matthew eleven nineteen. That mighty God, when he came, the Son of Man came eating and drinking so that people would say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors. Congressman might be the closest equivalent we have. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. His reputation, because he was sitting with sinners and people that were social outcasts, and, and he was eating and drinking with these people, and he was gossiped about and and slandered, but yet he was just patiently moving about our planet. What about the Jesus who welcomed children and promoted the presence of women and seemed to only show anger towards hypocritical, empty religion that was arrogant and oppressive? If Jesus is a warrior, then why does he tell us to forgive and to be meek, humble, and to serve? And if Jesus is a valiant warrior, then why are the peacemakers the blessed ones? Why are we to forgive our enemies if we are to follow Jesus, the valiant, heroic warrior king? Yes, it appears that Jesus is victorious through the cross and the grave and his ascension and his present reign. And I know from Revelation that he will come again as a mighty, victorious warrior. But Jesus doesn't seem to present himself in his 30-some-odd years on earth. Why does Jesus present himself this way between two advents? Between his first advent and between his second advent, why does he move about us in this way? I know I've been asking a lot of questions this morning. That's because I had a lot of questions preparing this sermon. I'd like to answer a few now. I believe that the life of Jesus on earth as recorded in the Gospels shows us how to live between two advents. How are we to move about our planet as Jesus did between his first arrival and his return? You see, the life of Christ when he was here 2,000 years ago, anticipates a time, anticipates a future time when sin and death will be destroyed and all the wrong things will finally be made right. Listen again to Revelation 19.11. It's war language. Its writer is called faithful. That's Jesus and true. That's Jesus. And with justice, he what? Judges. Right? With justice, he judges and makes war. Jesus is coming In judgment, though that's not how he presents himself in the Gospels. But I believe that because Jesus is returning to judge, we don't have to. Because Jesus died and rose again, you and I can be forgiven. And because he is returning again, we can forgive others. Because Jesus came and did what he did the first time, you and I have hope and we can be forgiven of our sins. But because Jesus is coming again to judge the evil of this world in sin fully and finally, 
we are free from the burden of having to live with the burden of judging and begrudging and withholding from other people. The second coming of Jesus enables us to live lives of deep trust and perseverance. Folks, the church, though persecuted often to this day, is still growing and has been for 2,000 years in the face of oppression, but it's not doing so through armed resistance, legislation, rioting, and storming its capital buildings. No, the church is alive and on fire even during persecution as it kneels praying for its enemies, confident that the meek will indeed one day inherit the earth because their mighty God will come again. In this way, the return of the mighty God, King Jesus, really presents to us the miracle of forgiveness. You see, all the wrongs against me personally will one day be made right, but not by my bitterness or by my retribution, but in Jesus. In all evil in this world will meet its end in our mighty God. Corey Tenboom, some of you may be familiar with, was a from a family in the Netherlands that were watchmakers. With her family during World War II, they had a goal of hiding as many Jews in their home from the Germans as they could. She later became famous for writing the book, The Hiding Place. But this morning, I want you to hear a story that took place well after all that. You may be familiar with Corey Ten Boom hiding Jews and writing The Hiding Place. Because of what her family did, they were sent to a concentration camp, a German concentration camp. But in preparation for this sermon, I came across a little publication my parents used to read growing up. It was called Guideposts, and it was like a Christian Reader's Digest. When she was 80 years old, when Corey was 80 years old, she wrote herself an article for Guideposts in 1972. You can get it online. And I want to read to you this morning a portion of it. It's called On Forgiveness. These are her words. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeat Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence collected their wraps, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the other, 
the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, but the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good is it to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He, he would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him in the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I'd been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time he went on, I became a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. Or had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but actually as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And, I, and still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely 
as I did then. Harvest. I'm going to ask Jamie to come up. He's going to help us respond. We have victory over bitterness in impossible situations because of the arrival, the advent of Jesus. Because Jesus died and rose again, we can be forgiven. And because he's coming again to bring judgment against sin, we don't have to judge now and we can forgive others. We have a resource in Jesus through faith that the world simply does not have. Because Jesus is coming soon and because he will judge, I am free to forgive. And in the, even in the deepest moments of injustice, I can look to the heavens and say, Father, forgive them. And when evil just does not relent, I can cry out, even so, come, Lord Jesus, harvest. I have asked Jamie to sing a song that he's written that has meant a lot to my wife and I through his album. And so in a different way, I'm not going to call us to stand and sing. I want you to stay seated and reflect. Perhaps the greatest way that you can prepare for Christmas this Advent season is to lay a huge burden down. Perhaps the greatest gift you could give yourself this Christmas is to forgive someone else. To fully and finally lay it all down at the feet of Jesus. Would you at least open your heart in prayer to God right now with this question, God, what bitterness have I held in my heart against a brother or sister, family member, spouse, long lost friend, child, parent? God, the bitterness is killing me and harming the people around me. You know, they say bitterness is the only substance that changes the container it's in. And so as Jamie plays and sings, would you, would you at least invite God to search your heart and in his strength, lay it down. At the end of the service, we're going to have members of our prayer team and elders up here if you'd like someone to pray with. There's a prayer corner over there that will be staffed. If you have something confidential you'd like to talk through with someone, they will be available. But would you just please take in this song and go to the Lord?
Burns down. 